Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aw Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota take on a show that's named after a city in North Dakota. I'm Tracy Mumford. I'm a producer for NPR News. I'm Jay Gabler from The Current. And Tracy, do you know what the principle of restricted choice is in the game of Contract Bridge? I still don't know enough about Bridge. No. Okay, tell me. What is it? Well, according to authoritative source Wikipedia, the principle of restricted choice means that play of a particular card decreases the probability its player holds any equivalent card. All right, so basically we're getting this hint that the possible outcomes are narrowing in this season. Um, And actually, we will have more about Bridge coming up for you. This episode, we interviewed Barbara Seagram, the author of 26 books about Bridge. I could go on forever about the game. It's just wonderful. And I love it. And everybody that starts it loves it. Coming up later, she fills us in on this game that is looming over this season of Fargo. Her enthusiasm about Bridge is contagious, which is good because based on watching this show, I don't know if you would uh, come away feeling too excited about the game of Bridge. Can we address one hiccup from the first episode that I'm still puzzling over and people on Twitter are also puzzling over? Okay. How did Maurice, rest in peace now, know to go to Nikki's apartment to find... Ray and Nikki after he murdered Ennis. That is a good right? question. I'm thinking he might have followed Ray maybe from work. Maybe, but then he waited in the parking lot long enough for them to draw a romantic bath. All I'm saying, something doesn't add up there. Just throwing it out there. Twitter, if you have ideas, please fill us in. Just wanted to get to that before we dive into episode two. The principle of restricted choice. So we are back with Gloria, who is still haunted by the murder of her stepfather, Ennis. And she's flipping through these old sci-fi novels, which their titles, in case you did not freeze frame it like we did, are not to be missed. Uh, They include The Planet Y, Space Elephants Never Forget, Organ Fish of Cluse 9, the Plague Monkeys, and my personal favorite that I would really actually like to read, Toronto Kane, Psychic Ranger. So exciting. Along with a signed photo from starlet Vivian Lord. So looking at the contents of this box, it becomes clear that these were books by an extremely successful science fiction author. As a matter of fact, he won a golden planet, and his name was Thaddeus Mobley. And Gloria realizes that Thaddeus Mobley is one and the same with... Anastasi. So clearly her stepfather had this whole secret life that he kept totally hidden from her and he gave up all this fame and fortune for a reason I believe we will uncover at some point. There is actually, if you check the credits, a young actor in his 20s cast as Thaddeus Mobley. So we will actually be seeing Thaddeus slash young Ennis as the season continues. Yes. And a key detail we learned about Ennis's life later in the episode when Gloria is talking to the coroner, we learned that Ennis only moved to Eden Valley in 1980, which if you're keeping track of your Ennis lifespan, means he would have been 52. So there's a lot of room for Ennis to live a life before he moved to Eden Valley and seemingly took on a new identity. Gloria declines to go to Ennis's autopsy at this point, saying, uh, they glued his nose and mouth shut. I don't think the cause of death is a cliffhanger. Yeah. So we learn a macabre detail about the specific nature of Ennis's demise. Right. I don't know if glue was Maurice's calling card, but he sure left some behind there. Gloria is not only dealing with solving the murder of her stepfather and his secret sci-fi identity. Her job is still on the line here. The county is moving in and they need to modernize things like make her use a computer. 
Yeah, I am not loving the critiques of technology that much in this season. I was hoping for something a little sharper and funnier, but it's like, really, 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 even if you're the police chief of a very small city in the year 2010, really, you haven't even unpacked your computer? I don't buy it. Yeah, there's a heavily uh, Luddite-leaning <laughs> characteristic of this cast that I'm not quite buying for 2010. But Gloria does definitely seem to have kind of this allergy to technology, like not even the automatic door sensors recognize her presence. We've seen that twice now, once at the Red Owl, again at um, the library, which is also the police department. So I'm just going to throw out a crazy theory here. Gloria Burgle, ghost, question mark? Needs to be addressed. Okay, anyways. Okay, okay, okay. Twitter, get okay, at me. Okay. Get at me. Okay. So basically, things not going well for Gloria. No. And you know, another detail about um, her stepfather, Ennis, if his original name was not Anastasi, that means he assumed the name Anastasi, which ended up being the reason for his demise. If he wasn't Anastasi, he would still be alive. Right. You should be careful what name you pick up when you change your life and hide in a rural Minnesota location. Anyway, back to Emmett, the parking lot king of Minnesota. Yes, Emmett heads to his top legal eagle, Irv Blumkin, to solve his loan that wasn't really a loan problem. And Irv Blumkin lays it out. He says, uh, so you borrowed a million dollars from a man whose first name you didn't know. But Emmett's like, no, you figure it out. It's your problem now. Google him, Facebook him, find out anything you can about VM Varga, our menacing Brit who is slowly taking over Emmett's company. He puts Irv on the case. Irv, we barely knew thee. Indeed. Yeah. So we, I think a little more plausible that Irv is not so good with a computer. You know, really an old lawyer guy. I can believe that he rarely lays his fingers on a computer, but he figures out how to use a search engine. And, uh, you know, if your name is VM Varga, that's a pretty unique name. You're going to be, it's going to be pretty easy for you to control what your Google results will be. And in fact, there's only one for VM Varga. And it leads to a link to uh, download some information. It's a virtual bear trap, right? So you click on this VM Varga link, it snaps your photo and then crashes the whole system. A couple years ago, the director of the FBI actually said everyone should put tape over their webcams. And if last night's episode of Fargo didn't convince you that it's time to do that, I don't know what will. Varga's henchmen, they now know Irv. He's on their radar. Yeah. So Mimo and Yuri show up at Irv's car and we learn an interesting detail. So this is really where we first meet Yuri in this. Uh, well, we've, we've seen him we, before. We think he's Yuri. This is our first callback to that Berlin 1988 opening from last episode that has completely stumped. That interrogator is looking for a Yuri. This guy in the parking garage who's threatening Irv identifies himself as Yuri. I don't think it's a coincidental Yuri. No, I don't think so, especially since he brings up ethnic strife in Ukraine. And in the background, we hear the very same Ural Cossacks choir who were singing in that opening scene in 1988. Right. We thought we were going to have to wait all season to understand what Berlin was trying to tell us. But Yuri appeared sooner than we thought. Yeah. So he has uh, some beef with uh, Irv's people who back in the day were fleeing from the Cossacks. And Yuri's like, yeah, you know what? The Cossacks didn't have it so easy either. And by the way, we're just going to throw you off the edge of this parking garage right Yeah. Now. His real beef with Irv is that he looked up VM Varga. So he's got to go. And his assistant or his wife, I'm not sure which, actually calls Emmett to let him know that um, Irv jumped off the parking garage, which is not exactly what we saw happen. No. But anyway, back to Emmett. Emmett and Sai are cruising around in uh, the Stussy Command vehicle, 
kind of a uh, it's almost, a hummer it's a it's a hummer there you go it's a hummer with a little hawaiian dancer on the dashboard presumably from emmett's daughter's wedding minnesota landscapes tropical dreams and basically their business problems are only getting worse uh vm varga has parked this giant foreboding semi truck in one of his out of the way lots and the contents of this truck are a mystery meanwhile another man with a mustache ray he is reading all about Ennis's death in the St. Cloud Times. Emmett also read about it. Uh, I love Emmett's remark. He says, this is not the Minnesota I grew up in. No. I'm like, no, with that accent, you did not grow up in any Minnesota, you and McGregor. I'm still not fooled. Yeah. But Ray uh, is covering his tracks after last episode's murder by AC unit. And it appears, you know, murdering together has not tamped down the romance any between Nikki and Ray. But there's a new problem, Nikki points out. Ray's chi is totally blocked. She can't slap it back into alignment. So Ray is going to have to take care of his aura if Ray and Nikki are going to have a happy ending, get that multi-thousand dollar bridge sponsorship that they are looking for, and get on with their lives. Yeah, you can't play bridge with block chi. So there's only one way to fix this chi, Nikki points out. Ray needs to solve this thing with his brother. They either need to bury the hatchet officially Or he needs to steal back that stamp. Obviously, we know Ray is more of a steal back that stamp kind of guy. Yes. Basically, this sets up the big confrontation, the climactic moment of the episode, which is Ray and Nikki are going to go and simultaneously maybe heal up Ray's uh, feud with Emmett, but also make it worse because Nikki is going to steal the stamp. Right. Nikki slips into Emmett's office, but where the stamp should be hanging on the wall is instead a picture of a donkey. An ass. An ass, which she takes as a direct taunt. Like, he's hid the stamp, and he's calling them an ass, and she is upset. In the words of Sai, she deploys a sanitary device as a weapon. Yes, and specifically, she leaves it in a drawer that she unlocks with her little uh, unlocking kit. Because obviously she has a lockpicking kit. But she finds something in that drawer, a receipt for a safety deposit box. Now, her working assumption, we're guessing, is that that is the safety deposit box where Emmett has stowed the stamp. But here's my thing. You cannot show a safety deposit box receipt in a show where you have cast the same actor to play two roles without immediately setting the tone for a classic bank impersonation switcheroo, right? Is Ray going to have to play Emmett to get into the safety deposit box? I have all kinds of like parent trap hijinks in my mind at this point. Yeah. So we later learn, and Emmett mentions to Sai that the stamp is off the wall in reality because the frame was just broken. It was knocked off the wall by the cleaning lady. And so it's just being fixed. So my question, Tracy, is what is in the safety deposit box? I think it's Varga's money. Okay. Well, they, they do talk about it being on the books, though, right? Yeah. Sitting there on the books. I don't Maybe. think it's on the books if it's cash and a safety deposit That's box. That's true. What else does Emmett have to hide? I don't know. Maybe an extra pair of house shoes. Uh, yes. His, his really good ones. Right. But while Nikki is uh, pulling off this very unprecedented scheme, I will call it that, Ray is distracting his brother and they actually have a moment. There is a moment where the Stussy brothers... Maybe they could work it out. Maybe they finally understand each other after this long-running blood feud. Ray says, you don't owe me anything. You know, I'm proud of you. And they almost hug it out, but this is Minnesota. 
We don't touch. So it's more of a kind of come in for a hug and turns into a handshake. But that's still pretty good for Emmett and Ray. Unfortunately, what Nikki did upstairs is really going to sabotage any little piece of trust that they managed to have rekindled. Yes. Not only did she uh, leave a little uh, surprise for Emmett in the drawer, but she also writes on the picture. Basically, Emmett's obviously really upset. And Cy, who's like his sidekick and also kind of his pit bull, tells Ray the next day, like, the relationship is over. He will never speak to his brother again. The Stussy brothers are through. This is it. The final moment. To emphasize his point, he drives the Stussy Hummer right over his beloved red Corvette. My favorite detail about this confrontation between Sai and Ray is that Ray keeps telling Sai he'd better watch his tone. And Sai just kind of repeats it back to him. Like he's trying to be tough, like, oh, watch my tone, huh? You want me to watch my tone? Oh, you want me to watch my tone? And like in any other show, this is an obvious setup for Sai to just like lose it and throw the table or do something terrible. But Sai just kind of keeps repeating, oh, okay. You want me to watch my tone? Well, and as if Emmett's life could not get any worse, the episode ends with the elevators opening and Varga straight up moving his staff into the office. Mimo's there. Yuri's there. They're carrying bank boxes and dollies. They have not just taken over the finances of Stussy Lots Limited. They are actually taking over the office at this point. Emmett has completely lost control of his parking lot empire. Although, interestingly, I feel like, I know. tell me what you made of this. Uh, it was a quick little shot, Tracy, but the reaction shot when it's being explained to Emmett what is going to happen with his business, which could include his business becoming very much bigger and Emmett becoming a billionaire, as VM points out, on paper at least. And I thought I saw a little bit of a gleam in Emmett's eye, kind of like, hmm. Oh, maybe, maybe the Ms. criminal dark side is drawing Emmett to it. I don't know. We're going to have to see. Yeah. And we also get a beautiful soliloquy sort of from vm varga on why he loves minnesota did i tell you what i like about this place minnesota it's so perfectly sublimely bland isn't it we are still getting some little Cohen Brothers moments in this episode. Uh, we had a reference to Stan Grossman. Shout out to Stan Grossman from the original Fargo. Um, and also, lest anyone have forgotten, David Thewlis, who is playing VM Varga, uh, is in The Big Lebowski. He is one of um, Julianne Moore's henchmen in that movie, um, who's prone to giggling. So this is a return for him to Cohen-inspired land, at least. I love the Stan Grossman reference. And I was sort of doing math in my head, like, okay, this is now, you know, a better than a decade after the events of the original Fargo movie. I love that Stan Grossman is still around, still developing real estate in Minnesota. Once you get in the parking lot game, you just can't quit. Or in his case, the condos game. That's true. So I also wanted to talk about blood feuds. So we have, obviously, the blood feud between Emmett and Ray. There's also a reference to sort of blood feuds in Eastern Europe. This seems to be a theme, that it's just like it's in your blood that things are going to go wrong between you, that this goes that deep. And I noticed that in one of the scenes when Ray was talking with Nikki about this developing feud between him and his brother, redeveloping feud, because this is after Nikki has already sort of broken in and uh, left that surprise for Emmett. You can hear singing in the background that Cossack's choir. Well, and Fargo has always been about spilled blood, right? Or sprayed blood if a wood chipper is involved, I guess. And the cinematography completely backs that up. There are moments that look almost black and white except for details of red, like the red Corvette driving through the snow or someone's wearing red. So red and blood, obviously uh, a Fargo motif always. Another theme I think is emerging 
misunderstandings. I mean, always going on in Fargo, people are misunderstanding, not quite knowing what's going on. But it seems like violence caused by confusion seems to be a major theme of this season. Think about how much goes wrong because of confusion and misunderstanding. You've got Maurice killing the wrong Stussy. You've got Emmett not knowing what he was getting into when he thought he was just signing a normal loan document. In fact, he was joining a partnership with the mob, basically. Irv clicking on VM Varga's name, not understanding what he's getting into. Nikki not knowing why the stamp had been moved, so completely misunderstanding the situation and escalating the situation with Emmett rather than just sort of quietly leaving. So many misunderstandings. And I wonder if this ties in with a larger theme of sort of communication or lack thereof. Interesting. I also think that it's just a show where the stakes are so high that these simple misunderstandings lead to the body count rising. Yeah. And I keep noticing this music. There's all this music sung in foreign languages. VM Varga speaks many languages we learn. I feel like foreign languages are being used in this season, both in the sense of the ability to deceive with them or confuse with them intentionally, a la VM Varga, who himself like speaks different languages to his different hench people. But then also just sort of miscommunications, the idea being that sometimes you just don't understand what a person means, even if they're trying to say it plainly. Watch your tone. Mea culpa. I read an interesting thing this week in the New York Times. It's actually their review of the season so far. And they were saying, like, think of Fargo as a procedural. The locations and the accents are the consistent things, but the storylines sort of change, which I think is an interesting way to think of season three. Some people have said they love it. It's their favorite one. Some people have said it's a little slow, but it's interesting to think of it as like another entry in a police procedural. Just what stays the same are the accents. One more question. Why do we think Ennis hid his identity as an award-winning science fiction author? I don't know, but we are going to find out next episode a little bit more about Ennis because as the preview showed, we are going back to the 70s and I am so excited. They had that little clip. It looked pretty groovy. I loved last season. I love the jump back in time. So thank you, Noah Hawley, for giving us at least a little bit of the 70s once again. And we learned in this episode, well, we saw that before, but also it's Christmas time. In the present day of season three. That's because it's always winter in Minnesota. It's always winter, but it's not always Christmas. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, Jay, it is now time to play bridge. I'm ready. Barbara Seagram is going to take us into it. This season of Fargo, as we know, has a heavy bridge plot line. Uh, for people like Jay and me who don't know as much about bridge, we thought we had to bring on an expert. So we have Barbara Seagram. She's been playing bridge for 42 years. She also teaches people to play bridge. And she has written 26 books about playing bridge. So I don't think we could have found a better bridge expert Barbara, thanks for joining us. What fun. Can you give us a quick rundown of how the game of bridge works? Absolutely. Bridge is a game played by four people. The person opposite you is your partner. The ones to your left and your right are your opponents. You use a deck of 52 cards. It's dealt out evenly to all players, so they each hold 13 cards. Spades, hearts, diamonds, and clubs, the four suits. Aces are the highest card in the deck unlike poker, where an ace can be a one or a big card, then kings, queens, and so on. Let's say the person to your left places a card on the table first, the ace of spades. Then everyone at the table must contribute a spade. Those four cards comprise a trick. Bridge is a trick-taking game. Because the ace of spades was the highest card in that trick, it wins that trick. The object of the game is to win as many tricks as possible for your side. At the beginning of each deal, however, 
The four players decide which suit will have magic powers. That suit will be called the trump suit. Let's say the person to your left now plays the king of spades, and you don't have any spades left. Then you could now play the two of hearts. And if the hearts, hearts has been named as the all-powerful suit on that hand, then the two of hearts would win the trick. We determine what suit will be trump by a process called bidding at the beginning of each deal. All players advertise what they would like to have as trump, and the side who bids to the highest level wins the battle and gets to name the trump suit. Or they could even decide that on that hand there will not be a trump suit, in which case it's called no trump. So, so far, Barbara, this actually sounds pretty simple. I feel like I already kind of know how to play bridge, but I know that bridge gets extremely complicated. So how does, how does it get so complicated when the rules seem so accessible? Well, it's the bidding that does make it more complicated. And there are many systems throughout the world of communicating effectively with your partner what's in your hand without saying to your partner, well, I have on this hand, I have five spades. So they have to do that using code language, and that's the bidding. On this season, we have this character named Nikki Swango. She's a recent parolee, and she has big dreams of hitting it big on the competitive bridge circle. But um, you told me something interesting here. While Nikki Swango dreams of like winning six figures, that's not actually how the world of competitive bridge goes, is it? No, it isn't. Competitive bridge can be at many different levels. You can compete against novices or intermediates or against stronger players. Now, some professional players are paid large sums of money to partner clients. These players have even greater motivation to win so that they're even more focused. Generally, in the world of duplicate bridge, competitive bridge, it is not played for money. It's played for honor, fame, and glory, and master points. Players sometimes get paid to be the partner of someone who wants a strong partner? Absolutely. That happens a lot because it's a learning process, kind of like being a golf pro. What about sponsorships? Do players get paid to, for example, have a brand name on their bridge shirt? No, not on their bridge shirt, but there are sponsors who sponsor a team and hope that they will win. And they want to be part of that team, though, those sponsors, so that they get to play with the experts. I see. So it's like kind of a vanity game in that way. The money is in having your name in lights and winning. So if other people are on the team that can make that happen, then that makes you important, too. But it's all about honor, fame, and glory. So how do you know when you have a good partner in bridge? What makes someone a great partner? Well, before playing with someone, you sit down and chat and agree on certain methods that you, as a team, as a partnership, will employ. And there's no secrets in bridge, by the way. All agreements are disclosed to your opponents, or this would be cheating. But you agree on your style and what your bids will mean. A good partner treats you with love and respect and does not argue with you or belittle you at the table. You, in turn, must behave in like manner. Good partners are hard to find, but a good partner builds your self-confidence and never erodes it. So, Barbara, tell us a little bit about how you got started playing bridge. Well, my first mother-in-law from my first marriage sent me for bridge lessons in 1975, along with the first husband. He didn't love it, but I did. We drifted apart when he fell for a much younger woman and I fell for a bridge player. We both married our new loves and my current husband is a way better player than I will ever be. 
I took many more lessons after that and read and played voraciously. I used to teach nursing and then began teaching bridge instead. I bought the Kate Buckman Bridge Studio in 1990, which became the largest bridge club in Canada and the fourth largest in North America. And life has been a whirlwind ever since. Thanks to Masterpoint Press and my co-author, David Bird, I'm now the co-author of 25 books. My husband, Alex Gornell, is my favorite partner, and we travel the world teaching bridge aboard cruise ships and in other countries, as well as throughout North America. So it sounds like a lot of your life is bridge. Does bridge ever bleed over into the parts of your life that are not bridge? Do you find yourself using bridge terms and ideas and even thinking in bridge terms, even when you're not actually thinking about the game? When someone dies, bridge is an instant cure for grief. It's an immense distraction, and people use it as a great escape for life. And bridge gives many people a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Many people have met their spouses or better halves at the bridge table. Great chemistry happens at the table when two people connect well and they're communicating effectively. Many marriages and relationships have happened as a result of bridge. Bridge has become so much a part of my life that I know very few people outside the world of bridge. People combine bridge with other hobbies, travel in particularly, as they can go on bridge cruises and see the world. As a nurse, I have been able to escort lots of people around the world and help to take care of their medical needs at the same time. Golf is another one. They play golf by day and bridge by night. On the show, the bridge players that we're watching are on the younger side. What is the bridge world like? Is it aging or are you getting younger players? It's definitely aging. But the world of online bridge is allowing a lot of young people to start playing online because they don't have to commit for three hours. They can just play for an hour. And so they meet their partners. You know, you can be sitting in Toronto and playing bridge with someone in Norway and your right-hand opponent can be in Australia and your left-hand opponent can be in Egypt. That's the wonderful thing, by the way, about bridge. In real life, it crosses all levels of society and it's a great equalizer. All nationalities, all religions, all cultures, all levels in the workplace can all play together happily. Less happily, it seems like in the show, Nikki and Ray may be heading for a scandal because they are engaged in some illegal behavior away from the table. Have there been any notable scandals in the real world of Bridge? There have been some cheating scandals, which are ugly. And players uh, place their pencil in a certain way on the table, and that means they have certain cards. They hold cards with their left hand if they have certain things and with their right hand if they have certain things. But these situations are caught because it means that they are doing bizarre things and they get caught by the bridge police. And then they get thrown in bridge jail, which means they can never play bridge ever again. I really hope this season of Fargo features someone in the role of a bridge police officer. (laughs) (laughs) What fun. It's a great show. All the people who are listening who've never played bridge before might be intrigued at this point. What's your selling point to really make someone sit down at a table and learn the game? It is a magical game. You never get tired of it. I could play after 42 years. I could still play morning, afternoon, and evening every day of my life and never get bored with this game. It is a constant, constant challenge, and it's so exciting. And by the way, anyone can learn to play by going online to a website which is free, 
which is acbl.org, which stands for AmericanContractBridgeLeague.org, and there's a Learn to Play Bridge program, and it teaches them from scratch. So it is so fun and so exciting, so challenging, so exhilarating. It can also be demoralizing, but the ups are bigger than the downs. So I just have one more question for you, Barbara. These characters in the show are coming out of Minnesota and trying to make their way in the competitive bridge world. Is Minnesota and the upper Midwest generally, is it a hotbed of bridge? Do good bridge players come out of Minnesota? Absolutely. Lots of good ones. And it's a big bridge playing community. But there are about 40 million in North America and about 150 million in the world. It's a lot of bridge. A lot of bridge. But I could go on forever about the game. It's just wonderful. And I love it, and everybody that starts it loves it. But they will get discouraged at first, and then they mustn't. They've got to recognize that it's a humbling game, but it's such fun that it's really worth learning. Great, Barbara. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Jay and I are going to have to find partners and sit down at a table and try this. You absolutely must. You've hooked us. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Well, speaking of the 70s, our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. We are live tweeting all the episodes of Fargo on Twitter at Aw-G's Podcast. That is A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. Aw-G's is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Anna Reed. Okay, then. Bye now. <laughs>